With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another edition of Vanguard Elements. My name is Aldo Nicolás Mena, and I'm the founder and executive director of Mexican Americans in Solidarity with Mexico, also known as MASM. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Mexican-American Trump supporters and how to address the threat that they pose to the larger political interests of the Mexican-American community. And a little later in a segment we call Mexico Newswatch, we'll be discussing the latest incident in Mexico's bloody drug war, which in this case uh, is a horrific cartel attack on an extended family of, of Mormons traveling in northern Mexico. You're listening to Vanguard Elements, an MASM podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to Vanguard Elements. I'm joined once again uh, by my co-host, Hazael Anaya. I like to sometimes call him the one of the one of the horsemen <laughs> of the apocalypse but <laughs> how you doing today Hasel? I'm I'm doing great. Nice nice cloudy day today downtown right. El Paso. Right. Downtown El Paso and uh just uh full disclosure uh we're right downtown lots of construction going on lots so lots of traffic. Lots of traffic. Um so please bear with us, okay? Um okay, so First of all, Haseel, I'd, I'd like to preface my comments with a few acknowledgments. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge that the Mexican-American community is far from being a political monolith. I understand that. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge that a diversity of opinions and positions regarding a range of issues in, can productively coexist within the broader ideological ecosystem, for lack of a better term, of the Mexican-American community. And, um, you know, finally, just to be abundantly clear on this important point, I would like to unequivocally acknowledge my belief that Mexican-Americans should embrace and value ideological diversity within the Mexican-American community. So, you know, that's that's our starting point. I'm not against diversity of opinion within our community. Well, it seems like uh, there's all sorts of segments within the Mexican-American community. You have people that have had experiences on both sides of the border, um, you know, different groups of people moving their communities at different times, uh, even the language barriers within the Mexican-American community. You have have the Mexican-Americans that are not so good at English. <laughs> you have the Mexican-Americans that are uh, not so good at Spanish. And uh, I think the media that they consume and, and the world that they live in is slightly different from each other's. It, it's definitely not homogeneous absolutely uh you know it's a it's a complicated situation and we don't mean to uh minimize that but with these you know with these uh initial points acknowledged i think that it is also imperative that the you know that mexican americans be able to recognize when an internal position is so defective for lack of a better term uh, that it can no longer be reasonably tolerated. Right. Okay, and uh, since Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States in June of 2015, I believe uh, the Mexican American community has been confronted with the absurd spectacle of Mexican Americans who have, for whatever reason, embraced Trump's broadly anti-Mexican agenda. Well, it may be some of the good people he's talking about. Right. <laughs> some of them are good people, I the guess. ones that vote for me. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> uh, anyways, Jorge Castaneda, uh, Mexico's former foreign minister and current, I think he's an, an, a professor at New York University, NYU, hmm. at this point. Um, 
I know he, you know, he regularly contributes to the Los Angeles Times, uh, El País out of Spain, and La Reforma, I think, out of out of Mexico. So he's he's a he's a professor, journalist, and he used to be a, a statesman for Mexico. Um, he has sort of summed up the anti-Mexican nature of the Trump uh, the Trump campaign and presidency uh, by noting that for the first time since Ronald Reagan assailed the Soviet Union in in the 80s, an American presidential candidate actively campaigned against the interests of another country. Uh, in this case, however, the country was Mexico, <laughs> the United States' second largest export uh, market, third largest trading partner, and basically, you know, despite some differences and issues between the two, you know, binational issues that have, have caused friction between the two countries, Mexico has always been a perennial ally of the United States at the end of the day. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's fair to point out that um, Reagan's attacks and rejection of the Soviet Union had a lot more to do with, you know, the power to older satellite states. And, and it had some geopolitical implications, some, some reasoning behind it. And, and this idea of capitalism versus uh, so, uh, communism, I guess. And, uh, but he was still very much uh, open to the idea and even uh, oftentimes talked about how great the contribution of immigrants uh, was to the United States. And so it seemed like his position was a little deeper, you know, than, than Trump's just kind of rabble-rousing rhetoric that is just about, you know, the fear of, of what is it now, like, you know, immigrants coming over the border and, you know, uh, doing awful things to families. I mean, wh whatever new version of scandal he's come up with this time, you know? No, absolutely. But, you know, it resonates with his base. Uh, anything anti-Mexican seems to appeal to them. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a campaign strategy. I think we've even discussed this before. So. Scapegoating. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not surprisingly, uh, much of the anti-Mexican sentiment that has fueled Trump's candidacy has been directed at Mexican-Americans. Um, so, you know, there was a time, for example, when Trump uh, unceremoniously kicked Jorge Ramos. Mm -hmm. um, From uh, Univision. Right. Mm-hmm. He's a you know a prominent Mexican American journalist. He kicked him out of a press conference. Uh, there was is, the is time. Is he Mexican American? He is Mexican American. Okay. So he is a he is a U.S. citizen. Gotcha. So yeah, I I, yeah. I know that Univision works with a lot of people from right. you know the broader Latin American Spanish speaking right. countries. So. He's naturalized, but he is a U.S. citizen at this point. As a matter of fact, after the getting kicked out of the press conference, one of Trump's supporters came over to him and said, "Get out of my country." And Whoa. Jorge Ramos responded, sir, I'm a, like, I'm a U.S. citizen. Like, I'm here already. <laughs> yes, this is my country. Uh, you know, Trump has also maligned Gonzalo Curiel, uh, a Mexican-American federal judge. judge. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, basically saying, you know, he, I guess he maligned his Mexican heritage, said he was, you know, his pro-Mexico political positions, uh, said he was too Mexican to preside, or something to that effect. What does that mean? Too Mexican to preside over his Trump University trial, whatever. Okay. So His mustache was right. too big. And, you know, for the record, Judge Curiel, first of all, he's a federal judge. That's, yeah. that's a very, that's an elite judge for you. Right. You know, very distinguished um, juror there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and, and you know, for the record, uh, Judge Curiel was born, I believe, in Indiana. Okay. Uh, so he is a he is a U.S. citizen. Um, so interesting, but you know we should also not forget the uh, the outrages that continue to be committed in Trump's Trump's name by his you know I don't know, rabid supporters. I don't know what else to call them. Uh -huh. uh, I guess the Su Southern Poverty Law Center has referred to this as the Trump effect. So you know Trump's candidacy and his shocking victory in the presidential election. Has, uh, has spawned a range of sordid incidents throughout the United States as Trump supporters, emboldened, intoxicated by you know, his success, feel free to openly voice the sort of the vilest of anti-Mexican slurs, including things like build the wall, kill them all, and here's an explicit language warning, 
uh, at times, you know, you can hear them cheering, you know, saying things like, you know, fuck these dirty beaners, fuck these Mexicans, stuff like that at rallies. So we're going to have to explicit language right here. Sorry. <clears throat> well, uh, I mean, it, it, it's they should be the ones apologizing. That's that's uh, infantile. You know, like, right. Yeah. It's it's little kid kind of taunts that you'd expect adults to be over, you know. No, absolutely. Happened all you know throughout the country. Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, Texas, Oregon, Michigan. Uh, you know, they've they've invoked Trump and the border wall to taunt, harass, and intimidate Mexican Americans. One of the incidents that sort of pops out in my head is it happened in Colorado, believe it or not. Uh, there was a woman perhaps echoing the salient theme of the of the Trump campaign, she uh, she unleashes this crude verbal tirade against an unsuspecting Mexican-American mother in front of her children, you know, during what, you know, I, I believe this is an assault, you know. Yeah. Um, she, she, you know, she calls the mother a wet back and chants down with Mexican. If you, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what city, I think it was Somewhere in Colorado. I'll have to, I'll have to get it's back a, to you guys on that. It's kind of trashy right there. No, but, absolutely. I mean, you, you see some of, the, some of these sentiments echoed even by the gunman here that um, committed the atrocity here locally in El Paso. And uh, he, you know, he, he mentioned uh, this general larger idea of the great replacement um, that, that I've seen online about uh, you know some sort of precarious position that white people and white culture are, and uh, they feel uh, that they're being assailed from outside of their culture, and if they don't defend it, it might go away. And it seems like Trump's rhetoric uh, allows for some of those ideas to gain a foothold of of uh, seriousness simply because of his office, even though most people can tell that he's not fully a serious person. Uh, that you know he does a lot of things like a petulant child, <laughs> uh, and and it, I laugh because it's so ridiculous. But it's you know it's offensive that he would take the office of the presidency, the institutions of this beautiful and awesome country, the United States, and and uh, allow them to be so deeply connected to this trashy and irresponsible behavior. Absolutely. You know, what, what, I don't know, troubles me is that, you know, despite all of the ugliness associated with the Trump campaign, uh, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, the most troubling and frankly most baffling aspect of his candidacy has been the support that, quote, the most anti-Mexican presidential candidate in U.S. history has received from within the Mexican-American community itself. Right. Uh, it's it's a partial support. I, I would assume that uh, most people, most Mexican Americans, most people that are connected to the Mexican American culture, have supported more democratic candidates. And specifically in the 2016 election, I, I believe that most of them supported Hillary Clinton. Right. That's that's a good point. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I, I'm trying to think. I, I know the exact levels of the support are are difficult to precisely determine because sometimes they they'll lump in Latinos throughout the country so you're getting data that talks about latinos um you're, but your puerto ricans here puerto South ricans Americans, colombians or, or fellow spanish speakers cuban americans stuff right. like that um so it's difficult to determine the exact levels of the support but i i was looking at this at one set of data uh that i consulted that i guess in california texas nevada colorado and arizona which are presumably predominantly mexican-american populations mm-hmm. Uh, at least 80% of the Latino population there, which I'm presuming, like I said, assuming that probably Mexican-American voted in the 2016 general election for uh, for Clinton. So to kind of uh, confirm uh, what you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. So most of, most of the Mexican-American community in the United States did not support Trump. Right. But now we right. have this 20% to contend with what's going on right exactly and uh you know it's one of those things that obviously different dynamic for cuban americans different dynamic for colombians central americans in florida whatever puerto ricans have a very complex relationship absolutely and you know at least initially i used to think that uh, much of the anti-mexican sentiment that had fueled 
Trump's path to the American presidency was was being mistakenly directed at Mexican American, you know, Mexican Americans. Um, you know, I, I basically had initially characterized these attacks that I just mentioned as collateral damage. I figured that to Trump or to a Trump supporter intent upon expressing hostility towards Mexican immigrants, any version of Mexican would do, including Mexican Americans, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but then I came across a, a little video. It's kind of a curious little incident that occurred on March 4th 2017 at a pro-Trump rally being held in Austin, Texas as part of a a larger series of demonstrations known as the Spirit of America rallies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, At one point during the rally, a Mexican-American woman named Maria de Jesus attempted to address the demonstrators. So she's there with this group, uh, aligned with this group. Um, And according to Taylor Goldenstein, who... Goldenstein, I'm sorry, Taylor Goldenstein, who who was covering the event for the Austin American Statesman, Miss De Jesus was a representative of a group called Latino Trump Coalition or something like that, or Latino Trump Coalition USA. Okay, so she starts to address the crowd. She clearly identifies herself to those in attendance as a recently naturalized U.S. citizen. So one would have assumed that these Trump supporters, you know, with their ostensible devotion to the rule of law and all that, would have would have lauded or celebrated this woman. After all, she had done it the so-called right way. You know how they're always, you know, talking about, well, you know, do it the right way, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but as video footage of the incident shows, uh, this pro-Trump Mexican-American was not met with approval and applause, <laughs> uh, but was instead shouted down by a chorus of Trump's build the wall chant so they they clearly understood that she was recently naturalized she was a, you know a member of this organization pro-trump <laughs> latinos for trump usa or whatever uh and you know clearly aligned with with these trump supporters so why didn't these trumpers embrace this woman as a model immigrant and one of their own i say oh please explain this to me man it, it's got to be it. a rude awakening right <laughs> it's got to be a rude awakening to fi- find out that it's not really what they're saying uh they were not interested in in the details of immigration and how there is proper ways or improper ways they were just simply you know doing the down with mexicans I don't understand it. I don't like it. Get away. You're the source of our problems. We don't care what you have to say kind of attitude. Um, it's it's got to be rough. It's got to be rough to, to it, you know, it, it's, it, I, to my mind, it talks to this disconnection that there is between the ganging up uh, kind of social glue that Trump utilizes and the actual details of the ideology that they're pretending to espouse. Um, just how it must have been rough for this woman to realize that she's talking about one thing and they're talking about something else. Uh, I, I imagine it's got to be hard for uh, some Christians that support Trump to really look at the details. Um, the behavior is not particularly Christian. Right. Uh, the, the ideas are not really aligned. Uh, Trump is running around stealing political capital. Uh, from from these groups and uh, the more disorganized the group the more they're that they are vulnerable to get caught up in uh, ideologies that don't quite fit their best interest um, this whole idea of the, the, this woman's resentment of people doing it the wrong way versus her having done it the right way I can understand it on a human level. Nobody likes somebody cutting in line. You know, I can understand that that aspect. And, and I, I'm, I'm digging into this because I'm always curious about what it is that makes Mexican-Americans support Trump. Um, I wonder if... Um, I wonder how she felt about it afterwards. I, I, I really would like to know if question. her position mm-hmm. shifted or changed after that experience. Nobody... Good question. Yeah, no, no one enjoys getting booed or shouted at. Did she have an epiphany and suddenly realize, hold on a second, this isn't about, you know, immigration. Right. This is about something else. This is about something else. Yeah. And you've mentioned this before. Um, I think you, you know, you, you've, we've, you've mentioned a couple of times that 
This is about white nationalism. And um, I found this interesting article by Jane Costin of, of Vox. And basically she says that if you want to find out really what's at the, at the core of, the, of Trumpism, you have to sort of delve into the apocalyptic lore of white nationalism. Okay, and I think the, uh, the article she wrote uh, is entitled The Scary Ideology of Trump's Immigration Instincts. Okay, and basically she's making the point that, or you know, proposing the argument that the Trump administration has embraced a fringe theory of the far right that advances the notion that white people are being systematically erased. That's something you've mentioned before. Right, this idea of, um, they're changing it from white nationalism or, or white supremacy, which... You know, everybody has a sense that it's bad thinking, it's naughty thinking, it's inappropriate thinking. But they're changing it into somewhat more um, politically viable, um, like ethno-nationalism, where it's not that they're against other nationalities or races. It's not that they uh, are claiming that they're better. It's just that they're claiming that they want their own countries with their own space and they they point at other uh, nations that have sort of um, ethnic cohesiveness you know where you, you go to Japan and it's mostly Japanese people uh, and they point out to those countries and they claim to want something similar for um, you know the, the their white culture and um, white race so-called white race um, they're they're kind of trying to make it more palatable, but the ideas in their expression end up being just the same racist nonsense, you know, from from always. Right. You know, that same old xenophobia, fear of outsiders, uh, and scapegoating, uh, you know, ways of solving your problems by blaming the weakest members of your communities. Yeah, and, you know, I, I wonder if uh, Mexican-Americans who support Trump understand this feature of Trumpism. I think this is at the core of what Trumpism is. It's not about immigration. That's a part of it, of course. But it's really at its core uh, sort of an anti-Mexican uh, movement, you, you could say. And in, I'm using the term Mexican in sort of the broadest sense of the word uh, you know, to mean all ethnic Mexicans. And this expansive rendering of the word includes Mexican-Americans. And just to be just to clarify one other point real quick, you know, if Trump were solely attacking Mexican immigrants, that would be enough to warrant mm -hmm. uh, resistance and a response from the Mexican-American community. Sure. But what I, the point I'm trying to make here is that it's not just about that. It's that's an element of it. But at its core, and I believe the focus of Trumpism, at least one part of it, is uh, this racial demographics angle. Mm -hmm. um, like you were saying, the the sort of the white the white genocide theory, it right. has many names. Um, but you know, I'm at a loss to explain what exactly spawned this misbegotten support for by by Mexican Americans for for Trump. And like I said, I don't want to overstate it, right. know, as we said earlier. But um, you know, but, but it's real; it exists. And yeah. I, you know, I, I mentioned the podcast before that I'm I'm an immigrant. I, I came to this, you know, I, I grew up in Mexico, and I came to this country already um, in uh, middle school and high school. And so, um, my family, being Mexican, is very, very Mexican. We're we're very newly Mexican American, and um, there is people in my own family that have supported Trump, and I was. Very surprised that you're wow. raising your eyebrows to the roof, <laughs> wow. and uh, I, I I raised mine as well. And um, <clears throat> the reasons that I got from my very well educated, uh, you know, thoughtful family members, um, you know, what what I got from them is that they like the whole idea of a businessman in 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 politics instead of dealing with a politician. A businessman is just going to cut through the nonsense, the bureaucracy, and just get things done. That seems to be a thing that Trump has attempted to do, the way that he would run his business with uh, bullying tactics and, and just kind of uh, dictatorial uh, approaches, does seem to have shown up in his politics, and it turns out that there's bad consequences to that. Uh, 
Uh, I also got to work because I work in, in, in production. I got to work on um, on when Trump came into town. And uh, I, I was with an outfit. I was with a group of people that were interviewing a lot of a lot of uh, the supporters, the Trump supporters that showed up. Uh, first of all, I was completely amazed to see that a lot, I dare say, more than half of the people that showed up to support Trump. And I'm pulling that number, you know, out of thin air. But from what I saw, at least half of the people that were there to support Donald Trump were Mexican. And so I was flabbergasted. I was wondering uh, what was going on. And oftentimes, uh, you know, because we were asking them, you know, what they thought about this and that and to express and explain their support for Trump. I was noticing that um, it, it fell into a few different camps. Uh, there were some people that were there because uh, they felt that the conservative position was the position that they were uh, cornered into because of um, religious principles. Uh, they just feel that the democratic or liberal or progressive side is not going to appeal to, uh, I mean, it's not going to line up with their religious values. Uh, I, you know, I just mentioned the, the, the Christian right and how, how difficult it must be to to, you know, uh, to avoid the cognitive dissonance with if you have support for Trump. But there is that camp. There is that camp. Um, another section of the population was definitely uh, into this idea that um, Trump is a president. And as a good citizen, you support the president. And they felt that attacks on the president were somehow attacks on the country. And they were they were definitely uh, there to support the president in a in, in a very kind of um, generalized way. It, it seemed like they were not necessarily uh, connecting to the details of his politics, and so that was very surprising. Uh, the last camp that I saw that seemed to have some, you know, a group of Mexican Americans with heavy support for Trump were people that seemed to be uh, in kind of, um, what do you call them? Um, you know, cops, sheriffs, uh, you know, firemen. Right. Um, a, a lot of groups of, uh, from military structure. People, military people. It, but okay, yeah. So, you know, it seemed like they, they had this sort of um, power structure that they were uh, loyal to. Hmm. And, you know, and then the president was kind of, maybe the office of the president and not necessarily the president himself, but they seem to have some sort of loyalty to that aspect of things. Interesting. Um, I also noticed that uh, a lot of people, you know, the group that I was with was a very left-leaning um, uh, TV show, well-known TV show that I don't want to mention uh, because, you know, it was not my place. But um, when we were asking a lot of these Trump supporters about different things, I, I was realizing that um, they don't really know much about media beyond, you know, their Fox News and maybe a couple of uh, right-wing radio shows. They are not part of the conversation. A lot of the people that we talked to did not know much about your basic cable television lineup. They were avoiding CNN and fake news, you know, they, they were really isolated in the culture that they were consuming. And that seemed to be the case for a lot of these different subgroups. Interesting. Very interesting. I have two theories, you know, and obviously I don't have a lot of empirical data at my disposal right now. But, mm -hmm. you know, in one, one theory is this, that, you know, this support for Trump by Mexican-Americans is premised on, on nothing more than than ignorance, and, and I'm using the term not as an insult, but in the most sort of denotative and literal sense of the word. They, they just they don't, don't know understand. Better. You know, I think your brother would be shocked if we actually took him on a, you know, took him down that that path and said, "Look, you know, you are actually aligning with white supremacists who view you as a problem to be dealt with 
here in the United States. Yeah. Okay, so there's and, and just so you, just so everybody knows, it's not my brother. It's my, not your brother. My, I'm sorry. My brother likes Bernie. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. It's not it's not your brother. No, not not immediate it's a, family. Yeah, it's a cousin. It's a cousin. You're a very talented guy. Thankfully, I have no Trump supporters yeah. in my immediate family. My brother will call me and be uh, like, "I'm not a Trump supporter." <laughs> I apologize. No, no, no. I retract that statement. You know, I'd I'd be really curious to uh, question my cousin again. It was my cousin. And and to wonder whether his support, uh, because we talked about this during the election. And uh, I wonder if his support has changed and shifted as he sees how this uh, administration has unfolded its ideology. Uh, I I wonder what he would really say. You know, I I, I actually look up to him in very many ways. And um, I can understand this. Um, you know, this idea that a business guy is going to be better than a politician, right? I, I even heard some uh, some lady, some African-American lady on a TV show once talk about how, um, like, his his uh, manner, how he was a bully, uh, denotes strength. And she, she was saying, like, we, I appreciate that. I appreciate that he's strong and he pushes people around. And that's the type of strength that I'm okay with. Right. Hmm. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of these uh, Mexican-Americans who support Trump simply don't fully understand sort of the darker implications of the movement that they've embraced. Uh, They don't understand that, you know, the reasons why Trump has inspired white supremacists, neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, and other fringe elements of American society. I mean, David Duke was inspired to run for office by Trump. Um, uh and I don't think that's just a coincidence. I think they have heard something that resonates with them, and that's why they're inspired by Trump. It's not just some sort of, uh, you know, accident or whatever. You know, and, and I think they also, uh, many of these Mexican-Americans don't seem to understand um, that, you know, key members of the Trump administration, both past and present, uh, not to mention Trump himself, are white supremacists, if not in name, then you know, at heart and indeed, right? Well, and, and ultimately, um, we got to judge the tree by its fruits. Uh, how much he meant it, how much he didn't mean it, uh, it, it ends up being immaterial when we see the consequences. Um, you know, there, there's been definitely a rise in, in this kind of ideology uh, during this time. Um, I think that his unwillingness to declare some of these groups as negative was it really gave these smaller groups a, a whole new set of energy and young people being interested in it. Um, there seems to be a, a type of rebelliousness uh, that gets some people, that makes some people vulnerable to to these kinds of racist ideology. And uh, to to see a rebelliousness that is kind of like an undercurrent and, and justified at the highest levels of our social landscape, I think gives a type of permission. It's, it's not blatant, but it's kind of there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My other my other theory is that um, I think that this support is premised upon it. You know, if it's not ignorance, if they're aware of what Trump is doing, and apologies for the uh, the noise outside. <laughs> Um, but uh, in some cases, I think it's uh, it's premised upon a deep sense of, of insecurity or a distorted sense of identity or some strange combination of these factors. Uh, I think that uh, Mexican-Americans under the influence of this delusional mindset have somehow been able to convince themselves that they are distinct from the, the Mexicans and Mexican-Americans being targeted by Trump and his supporters. So they, they, you know, they cling to some sort of belief that they have a place in Trump's America. And that's kind of tragic um, because uh, I think what, what they're being used as is camouflage. You know, to be honest, my, you know, my attempts to understand this confounding and exasperating mindset have convinced me that maybe psychologists or sociologists are in a better position to sort of unravel and explain this troubling complex of insecurity delusion and ignorance ultimately and you know we we still haven't mentioned the first of all i think 
I think you're absolutely right. It becomes really difficult to understand when we are assuming rational behavior in people, when we're assuming that people are going to do what's best in their best interest. Uh, we, we do find some walls, you know, where things just don't make sense. I wonder uh, how much of the support has to do with a kind of a rejection of the opposite. I wonder, uh, you know, just like you remember in 2016 when uh, Bernie kind of got screwed over by the DNC, there were a lot of Bernie supporters that were so um, dissatisfied and disillusioned with the Democratic Party that they jumped ship. And they thought that, you know, Trump outsider was going to be better than Clinton insider. And, and the, you know, it wasn't all the Trump supporters, but a, a small section that all of a sudden switched all the way unreasonably all the way to the to supporting trump and i wonder if there is just uh some segment of the mexican-american community that supports trump that is just unwilling to accept or or live with what the democratic party has to offer right hmm. you know they, they might see some you know they might disagree with some of the social issues i, I know that there's many mexican-americans that consider themselves conservative right. and have ideas of family and religion that uh, I, I feel places them in the realm of republicanism. Um, but now that the Republican Party has been <laughs> usurped, <laughs> you know, has been taken right. over in a weird way by, by Trumpism, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's something else. And how, how, how difficult is it at that point to switch teams or to, you know, become an independent or, you know, which... Yeah kind of throws you into the pot of being irrelevant, right? you know? Yeah, I think it all goes back to really understanding the essence of what Trump is. I think in a, in a broader sense, these Mexican-Americans have failed to recognize their tenuous position in Trump's America. Uh, you know, Trump and his supporters espouse a racial conception of U.S. citizenship that effectively precludes Mexican-Americans and other people of, cover, of, of color from ever being considered real Americans. And so... Right. You know, there's a hierarchy of interests. And, okay, I understand some sort of, you know, nod to business and economics and stuff like that. But um, basically, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that while Trump and his rabble, you know, they, they oppose immigration from Mexico and other parts of Latin America, what they object to, most of all, is the burgeoning Mexican-American population and its corresponding political influence in the United States. In short, I think they've failed to recognize the... And I'm, and I'm using this term advisedly here, they fail to recognize the existential threat posed by Trumpism to the Mexican-American community. This isn't hyperbole. Mm -hmm. You have a movement that is aligned against your interests. Right. And, uh, you know, we've seen sort of the culmination of that in the massacre that recently happened. Well, not recently. It's, what, what are we going on? Three months now Three or something? Months. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, August 3rd, 2019. Um but, you know, whatever the cause, and I'll go ahead and close on this note and, you know, get your final thoughts on this. But whatever the cause of this, and I'm, I'm going to call it feeble-minded support. You know, I've kind of mm -hmm. lost patience. Of You know, I'm but, not going to sit around and try to figure out, you know, what, what your problem is. Or, or accept it implicitly. Or accept it or, you know, try to give it validation. Um, you know, it's become clear that the Mexican-American, you know, whatever the cause of this feeble-minded support, it's become clear that the Mexican-American community can no longer afford to accommodate it. And that's my larger point here. Mm -hmm. You know, for too long, we've, you know, we've chosen to simply, you know, look the other way or dismiss Mexican-American support for Trump as some type of fleeting and innocuous anomaly or, you know, it's freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, nobody is stopping, and just to clarify something, nobody is stopping them from, from voicing their opinion. So mm -hmm. this is not, a lot of times I've, I get that thrown in my face. Freedom of speech. Do, right. You know. Do you understand what freedom of speech means? Nobody's stopping you from right. expressing your, your, you know, expressing your opinion under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But the U.S. Constitution, and I think we've mentioned this before, does not stop you from having, you know, from it doesn't, you know, protect you from critique, protect you from critique, or protect you from the consequences of your opinion. Right. Right. Um, so. You know, given the gravity of the present situation, um, which I think was made starkly apparent by the slaughter of ethnic Mexicans in El Paso in, in August, it's clear to me that this aberration, whatever its cause, uh, can no longer be reasonably tolerated within our community. 
Um, you know, if this apostasy is not aggressively confronted, exposed, and marginalized, ultimately, you know, we, we need to identify it, we need to expose it, but we need to address it as well. Because if not, it's going to continue to be exploited to obscure the, the depth and nature of the threat posed by Trump and his deplorable supporters to all ethnic Mexicans. So yep. when we have uh, our family members that are supporting Trump, I, I do think that um, some depth of conversation needs to happen so that uh, we can help each other go deeper than uh, TV talking points. And, you know, when, when people get involved with politics uh, from media nowadays, it, it seems to be so shallow and um, people seem to collect phrases and then just kind of uh, uh, present them to each other. Uh, we need the conversation to be a little bit deeper. And um, in, in my own family, and, you know, you, you asked me about closing thoughts and... Uh, I think there's an important little tangential idea. Um, my immediate family is, is pretty lefty. We were lefty in Mexico. We were lefty in the United States. Um, and uh, last time t that I went to vote, uh, I voted in the same uh, section of the city that my family lives in. And uh, I was very late to the voting place. And uh, I got my vote in. But as they are checking my ID... I got to see the names of all my family members that are registered to vote. And I got to see that they had not voted. And, uh, you know, when when Mexican-Americans are throwing their support after, you know, what we're in agreement seems to be a, a, an inconvenient cause. Um, you know, that... that <coughs> Excuse me. That that's a that, that's a negative thing, uh, in my mind. Absolutely, it's people working against their own best interest. Uh, when people don't participate, when they should know better, like all the members of my family uh, are well versed in in you know the basics of the political discourse, and they are not voting. Uh, I just want to invite everyone to not be like that. Right. That, Absolutely. That Do be something. Like my family. I'm sorry. Yeah, that is a perennial problem with the Mexican American community. Uh, one of our biggest problems, you know, I think. Um, like, let's stop working against ourselves and mm -hmm. let's start putting a little bit of effort for our own best interest. Uh, right. I, I do think that this country is great. My family immigrated here Absolutely. Uh, in the hopes yeah. and dreams of the American nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to participate in it. And, you know, I, I think that the more that we can express ourselves and be part of the reasonable co political conversation in this country, the better we can make it for everybody. Absolutely. Great point. Okay, um, we'll be right back with a segment we call Mexico News Watch. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. You're listening to Vanguard Elements. Uh, this is a segment of our program we call Mexico News Watch, where we sort of take a look at some of the salient news stories uh, relating to Mexico. October was a challenging month for the Mexican government in its uh, protracted struggle against Mexico's powerful drug cartels, and November hasn't started off any better. Uh, on Monday, October 14, 2019, in the town of uh, El Aguaje in southern Michoacan, a group of approximately 30 cartel gunmen, uh, apparently from the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, managed to ambush and kill 13 state police officers uh, the very next day in the state of Guerrero. Another violent clash left one Mexican soldier dead and I think about 14 alleged cartel operatives dead. Um, but then, you know, and I think we discussed it, we discussed this on our last episode, um, what had started off as a bad week for the Mexican government would soon get significantly worse. And we're calling this the Culiacan incident. Um, on October 17, 2019, elements of Mexico's National Guard and the Mexican Army 
attempted to execute a warrant issued by a U.S. federal judge in the city of Culiacán, Sinaloa, for the arrest of Ovidio Guzmán, the son of the infamous Mexican drug lord Joaquín El Chapo Guzmán, who was uh, extradited to the U.S. in 2017 and is currently serving a life sentence for drug trafficking and conspiracy charges. Since his father's arrest, Ovidio has emerged as a leading figure in the Sinaloa cartel, along with his two brothers, Ivan and Jesus. Um, but as Mexican security forces, you know, they, they managed to apprehend Ovidio, but then they would soon find themselves surrounded and outgunned by approximately 150 Sinaloan cartel operatives. So uh, eventually, you know, uh, chaos was unleashed throughout the city. And eventually the Mexican government released Ovidio, uh, capitulated and withdrew from the city. Okay, uh, According to Alfonso Durazo, the head of Mexico's Ministry of Public Security, the decision to release Guzman was made in order to, quote, safeguard the well-being and tranquility of Culiacán. Mexican President uh, Andrés Manuel López Obrador has repeatedly defended this decision to surrender the city to the Sinaloa cartel by explaining that violence cannot be confronted with violence, okay? So we have all, we have a, a very rough October, and then we have uh, just, you know, just three weeks later, on November 5th, there was the brutal massacre of an extended family, a group of women and children, driving through Sonora toward the border with Chihuahua. The victims were all members of some sort of uh, breakaway Mormon sect, and they held dual U.S. and Mexican citizenship, so they're Mormons. I'm not an expert in, in Mormons or anything, but um, they're some sort of breakaway Mormon sect, from what I understand. So, I don't know, just a, a rough couple of weeks for the Mexican government, I think. And uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the decision to capitulate in Culiacán. Um, and like you were you were mentioning earlier, that uh, you know, there, there, there's more to this story than just uh, mistaken identity. I think, right? Right. Um, yeah. It seems like uh, that um, that Mormon family was part of a larger uh, Mormon community in northern Mexico, uh, with a lot of ties to the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a Vice documentary that I saw on uh, Mitt Romney's uh, extended family and how some of them had connections to some. Uh, Mormons in the north of Mexico, and I, I wonder if those two stories are related. Um, and if they are related, it seemed like there was already an ongoing feud between, um, you know, what these people are doing in their farming communities and, and you know, the what they do, and um, cartels. And I know there's a, there's been an exodus, I think, in the last couple of days where they're just, I think many of them are have just decided to come to the United States because they do hold the dual citizenship. Yeah. Why would you be over there when your children can be vulnerable to, I mean, this is monstrous. Right. Monstrous violence. Yeah. You know, initially the Mexican government or Mexican security forces had uh, identified the massacre as a conflict between two criminal groups fighting for control of northern Mexico. And uh, they basically tried to sort of portray this as a case of mistaken identity. They identified two groups associated to the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels. The groups were known as La Línea and Los Salazar, or basically trying to uh, espouse the narrative or advance the narrative that um, this was mistaken identity, the, a case of mistaken identity. These people were at the wrong place at the wrong time. There had been a conflict, and they just got caught up in this. But the families themselves are saying that they were targeted intentionally by a cartel from Chihuahua, apparently, uh, maybe as revenge for the community's proximity to the local cartel in Sonora, where La Mora is located. So sort of a perception that they had become too accommodating of the of the Sinaloa cartel. Or... I mean, in any way you slice it, uh, I don't think there's a justification for for the type of violence committed on these children, even if they were the children oh, no, of another cartel, yeah. you know what right. I mean? No, like, it's, this is the black eye. And I just think that the Mexican government, instead of coming out and addressing the issue, uh, are once again promoting a narrative that may not be completely accurate. This is happening 
in the context of record levels of cartel-related murders. You know, 2018 was bad, uh, in the, but the first six months of 2019, I think there were some, I think approximately 17,000 homicides, and it seems likely that the total for the year will surpass last year's total of 33,000 murders related to the cartel war. So we're on track to having another record year of cartel-related uh, homicides. And I'm just going to quickly read a, an excerpt. Kind of, you mentioned it earlier. Are we are we going down the path to a failed nation state? You mm-hmm. know, and um, you know, there's a lot of talk about sovereignty here. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the Mexican government is sort of losing sovereignty or losing control of its of its national territory. So I'm just going to quickly read an excerpt from an article that recently uh, was published by Vice News entitled "How Mexico Is Losing the War Against Cartels." And I'm, I'm just going to read directly here. A deep dive into the drivers behind the most recent violence in which state security forces at all levels are being outgunned, outnumbered, and outsmarted reveals a fractured cadre of cartels more powerful than ever facing down a weak government struggling to cope. Weapons and military training from the United States, combined with the co-opting of police at all levels by cartels, mean the country's crime armies feel Mexico is theirs. Oof. So, I mean, I don't know. Are we seeing the limitations of Andres Manuel López Obrador's policy of abrazos, no balazos? I think that's what he what it's referred to or, you know, hugs, not bullets or whatever. Um, you know, I, I agree with his long term strategic objective of addressing the the underlying causes of the drug trade, including, you know, economic inequality and related issues. But I think that in the meantime, it would be foolish and naive and frankly, as, as you know, the situations are showing, dangerous to completely abandon the military option, right? Um, incidentally, you know, Trump offered Mexico military assistance in combating the cartels. To his credit, Lopez Obrador wisely declined the offer of assistance. Uh, I, I agree that uh, wisely is yours. Wisely. <laughs> I was afraid there for a second. But. Yeah, because, you know, once you start to need your neighbor to come and manage your house, it, it's going to start to be your neighbor's house. It, it's it, it undermines the sovereignty of a nation to have another nation come and regulate things within it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I, I'm also glad that he declined at the same time. <laughs> There seems to be uh, the 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 power of the cartels is not just from the economic opportunity to its members. It also seems to be that they are starting to perform functions that should be uh, within the purview of the state. When um, uh, El Chapo's son, uh, the that whole fiasco happened and he got released, the lawyers for his family offered to compensate any of the people that were injured immediately. That is a function of safety and security that should be coming from the state, not from the cartel. Interesting. Like, I personally don't want it to, to devolve into a, a, a place where you have warlords, like in other right. countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's... It's unsettling that the government is capitulating at every turn, especially since we know that the cartel can offer better wages for any security operatives, that the cartel can have uh, kind of leverage to affect your life if you don't go along with what they say. Uh, We're running out of options. If they are outgunned and outsmarted, what was that list that you said? One of the ones that didn't get mentioned is Outspent. Outspent, absolutely. Yeah. And so, what options are there now to Mexico? One of the few that occurred to me is, you know, I, I think it's still within the power of the Mexican government to change the legality of um, the business of the cartel. And I think that with that kind of... Um, uh, like with, with that legalization and transforming all these cartels into corporations that have to participate within uh, organized structure, there could perhaps be a chance to either bring them uh, from illegality to legality, like the American experience uh, had to go through with alcohol, or at least 
to take out the wind out of the sails by taking away the money from the cartels. Right. Absolutely. It, it, we we got to admit that the the illegality of drugs is not preventing any drugs like we could probably find any drugs you would like at most high schools in the United States. And in Mexico, you can have no doubt you can find whatever you want. So the whole idea of keeping drugs illegal is not necessarily affecting the drug market in in any uh, uh, in any sense that you know that is helpful, and it definitely is allowing for these groups to have crazy amounts of power. Yeah, and lots Un of financial amounts. resources at their disposal. Absolutely, and you know, not to, I'm not shifting the blame away from the Mexican government and the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador uh, administration, but I think that if Americans really want to help with Mexico's drug war what they could do is clamp down on the flow of guns into Mexico. Sure. Okay? And that's something that I think, uh, you know, I was looking at a, a report published by the, uh, by the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Uh, and according to this report, between 2007 and 2018, more than 150,000 firearms were definitively traced from Mexican criminals to gun stores and factories in the United States. And uh, many times more, I believe, to still be in the hands of the, of the cartels. And I think that last year, 70% of the weapons that, that Mexican security forces confiscated and returned or surrendered to the, uh, to the ATF were confirmed to be made or sold in the United States. So that's another element. How can we help? Well, let's, let's talk to our, our representatives, our you know, senators uh, representatives, you know, federal representatives, uh, whoever will listen and let them know that, you know what, this, this, uh, the flow of arms into Mexico must be curtailed at some level. And, and it's frustrating because, you know, that, that's a solution that requires gun control. And we know right. that we have a history in the United States with being incredibly passive about gun control and the gun control lobbies and, and, uh, you know, the, what, what do you call it, the leverage that they have on politicians is, uh, again, another almost intractable position. So it's difficult to keep drugs out of the United States. It's difficult to keep guns out of Mexico because there is a demand. Uh, to my understanding, there is not many, if, if any, uh, uh, weapons manufacturing uh, factories in Mexico. I think there's one gun store somewhere. And, you know, like the, the laws uh, from, you know, what I know offhand, it, uh, I'm, I'm aware that gun laws are, are um, pretty intense in Mexico. Like the, the consequences of owning a gun when you're not allowed to have one are, are pretty stiff. Um, and yet we're talking about a, a criminal underground where those rules don't apply. Right. Uh, and, and so I, I have little hope. I have little hope that, you know, even even if we get a million listeners and they all write to their congressmen and, and try to put a little bit of pressure on ATF, I think it's going to be as powerful as whatever we're doing to stop drugs from coming into the United States. We can't even pass gun control here. We How can't. We, 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 we can't. Like, so, you know, uh, mothers yeah. with the blood of their children, uh, yes. are. it's still not enough argument to abate this this industry. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated Right uh, uh, on the idea of of uh, reasonable arguments, uh, I I think that uh, restructuring our values to you know at the at the core of this issue, to my mind, it, uh, it is about the drugs. Uh, people in Mexico have the the weapons in order to safeguard their drug business, and uh, I, whenever there's been um, uh, legalization uh, it has negatively affected these cartels uh, and, and so there's a, a bit of hope that I have in that in that you know we stop fighting against the public demand for these things and instead just really try to get rid of the business aspect the the, right. the source of their well, strength there is support I think um, for the legalization of marijuana throughout the country right in, in Mexico and how far are we from cocaine right. being legalized? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I know that uh, you know Ernesto Zedillo, the former mm -hmm. president of Mexico, has voiced support for that. 
I believe Calderon, mm-hmm. uh, Felipe Calderon, has also voiced support for the legalization of marijuana. How come they're all doing it after? After. No, after. Yeah, interesting. Interesting point. You know, I have a feeling we're going to be discussing uh, this situation in future episodes. Very interesting. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear from you if you're listening. Uh, you can follow us at uh, on on Twitter at uh, Solidarity WMEX. You can call us at one eight hundred four eight four four six one two. You can visit our website at SolidarityWithMexico.org, or you can forward an email to info at SolidarityWithMexico.org. Uh, Vanguard Elements is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Castbox, Spreaker. And we are now available on Podcast Addict. Uh, You've been listening to Vanguard Elements, an MASM podcast. Thank you for supporting alternative media. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.